You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining a new episode of Tech Tank. This episode I'm so excited about because this is an episode that's going to delve into the talk of the town, which is around online behavioral advertising and what social media companies are doing about it. You know, many social media companies have faced widespread public criticism for their advertising practices. On one hand, Personalized information collecting and ad targeting are convenient for some users, giving us the helpful recommendations of goods and services that pique our interest. I mean, I love blue dresses and the internet always knows because they send me ads of blue dresses all the time. But problems emerge when the internet infers that I have a daughter by the purchases that I make for her or assume that I'm concerned about money by the number of times that I log on and check my bank account. Soon, these variables may infer that I am indeed a black woman and the algorithm has been trained now to send me some predatory ads for higher interest credit card offerings. Not because I declared that I was a black woman, but because it figured it out. Friends, journalists and researchers are finding that advertisers could use online tools to target people of color in housing, banking, and unemployment ads. And with people becoming more reliant on the internet, for education, financial management, and more. How much online surveillance of people of color is going on and how is it impacting them? Is it the responsibility of companies like Facebook and others to know that this is happening? And how did we even get here technically? What remedies do we need? I tell you in this episode of Tech Tank, we're gonna answer all those questions and then some. We're discussing the research of my friend, Jinyan Zhang, whose recent research really looks at how discrimination lives on the internet, accounting for some of the changes that Facebook undertook recently to reduce discrimination that really ended up making it worse. That report will soon be available on the Brookings website. Jin Zhang is a scholar at the Public Interest Tech Lab at Harvard University Kennedy School. And as I mentioned, he is an expert computer scientist on these issues. And my friend, Dominique Harrison, who is the director of the technology policy program at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, working on key tech policy issues affecting black communities, such as data privacy, broadband adoption, AI, and ad targeting. Thanks for coming, both of you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Nicole. You know, Jen, I wanna start with you. You wrote this paper inspired by the 2020 boycott of Facebook and how Facebook essentially removed affinity groups to limit advertisers' ability to target racial groups. Your research found something very different happened when they did that. So tell us more about that research and your findings and share with folks, not so technical, Jen, because I know that you get in the weeds, right? But share with us how you actually arrived at those conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again for having me today and talking about this important issue of how discrimination can happen on social media platforms like Facebook. So while Facebook profiles may not explicitly state a user's race or ethnicity, my research demonstrates how Facebook's current advertising algorithms can still discriminate 
on these factors. I conducted the research in 2020 and in 2021, and I used Facebook's advertising tools to test how advertisers can use the targeting options that Facebook offers to ensure that their ads are reaching white, African-American, Asian, or Hispanic users. And this, as you said, comes despite the historic stop hate for profit boycott that Facebook faced in 2020, when civil rights groups like the NAACP, Color of Change, the Anti-Defamation League, and others got more than a thousand large corporations in the U.S. to stop advertising on Facebook for the month of July 2020 to try to push the platform to address misinformation and civil rights concerns. So my research really had three key findings. So first, in 2021, certain racial and ethnic cultural interest groups were even more accurate in targeting minority users than the old multicultural affinity groups with names like African American US that Facebook retired in August 2020 in response to the boycott. So for example, I found that in fact, 75% fewer white users could be reached by the seemingly more diverse sounding African American culture targeting option in 2021 when compared to the less diverse sounding African American US targeting option that Facebook removed. Wow. The second finding is that Facebook's algorithms to find new audiences for an advertiser based on their existing customers permitted strong racial and ethnic biases, which includes the special ad algorithm, special ad audience algorithm that Facebook explicitly designed to avoid discrimination since it's being used for housing, employment, and credit-related ads. And the third finding is that racial proxies, such as names and zip codes, can increase the bias of Facebook's ad targeting algorithms. So for example, if you ask Facebook to look for new audiences similar to an existing set of minority users with names and zip codes commonly associated with a specific race or ethnicity, Facebook's ad targeting algorithms will exhibit even stronger racial biases when compared to doing that same test with a set of minority users with more diverse names and zip codes. And again, this was even true (laughs) with the special ad audience algorithm that Facebook explicitly designed to avoid discrimination since it's being used for housing, employment, and credit-related ads. Now, Jen, I'm not a computer scientist. You know that I'm a sociologist. Why would this be the case? And again, for those who want to read more about this, this will be in a paper that will be forthcoming on the Brookings AI Bias website. But why did this happen? I mean, from a technical perspective, how, how could they create something that was supposed to avert discrimination? And, and in fact, it actually brings on more. Right. I'm happy you asked. So in a sense, it's not necessarily that we can pinpoint one group as having the blame, whether it's the designers at Facebook or the advertisers, but really it's 
potentially a reflection of the collective behaviors of hundreds of millions of Americans on the platform. And the fact is that we have a big data system like Facebook that has every single data point that they can collect in terms of how you behave online, how what are your attributes, who are your friends, who are your neighbors, what is your socioeconomic status in this country. And all of those attributes are related and influenced by race and ethnicity in some way. And so even when they build a algorithm such as the special ad audience algorithm, which may explicitly remove certain demographic attributes from being considered in an effort to avoid discrimination, that doesn't actually remove all the other ways that their computers can be able to treat groups of different users in different ways and potentially lead to discrimination. Wow. I mean, this is so fascinating because Dominique, you know, bringing you into the conversation, it's so hard to believe that the internet is perpetuating the type of systemic inequalities or surveillance of people of color, Black people in particular, given that there have been so many, you know, laws and rules that we work so hard on. Clearly, this is not unique to Facebook, right? Can you talk a little bit about how this has become ubiquitous across other platforms when it comes to targeted advertising? Yes, thank you so much again, Nicole, for having me. We're actually thinking about these issues as it relates to privacy-related harms for African-American communities. So it's not hard to believe because the internet and the ways in which we socialize online replicates our behavior in the real world. And in the consumer marketplace, companies are encouraged to develop profiles about individuals and their behavior to form the basis for differentiation so that they can sell goods and services to specific profiles of individuals. So as Jen says, if you watch advertisements on TV, which we all do, we see different clues as to who brands are trying to market themselves to. And the problem comes about when companies or individuals get to determine, though, that different types of economic and social opportunities for specific communities. And what I'm really saying here is that the unequal opportunity and of advertisements in housing, employment, and lending, which can lead to discrimination. And so we're seeing that across a number of industries online, and it's something that we have to pay more attention to and be intentional about trying to eradicate. Yeah, but Jidyan, I want to go back to you. I mean, I know that you just sort of said it's really nobody's fault. It's accumulation of just these models being deployed within, I assume, what you mean, a flawed society like Dominique is talking about. But I mean, but really, who is at fault, right? Is it the eager technologist who is sort of trying to get to market the greatest model? Is it the advertising companies or other third-party companies that want the best data that they can actually, you know, micro-target their consumers with precision? Is it government that didn't pay attention to this, right? And, And has now allowed this to form into a point where now they're talking about breaking up the big tech companies. So I'm curious, like, I know you don't want to say it's somebody's fault, but how do we get here? I mean, I think you've hit on it, right? It's a particularly hard problem to solve because it's all of the above in one sense as well. And I think specifically when we're looking at discrimination or algorithmic discrimination, we really have to take a step back and think that discrimination did not occur because of computers, 
right? Discrimination has deep roots in this country that go back to the founding institutions of this country in history. And so I think what I'm really interested in is thinking about, so now that we know that this is a problem and then we can identify it, you know, what can we actually do and what are the decisions that these different decision makers that you talked about can do to solve this problem? Um, I, as you mentioned in your intro, right, targeting ads based on what people want, like blue dresses, isn't necessarily controversial or problematic. The problems really emerge when it's related to important aspects of people's economic lives, where we as a country have already passed civil rights legislation to combat discrimination, particularly in terms of housing, employment, and credit. And so I think what we really need to see is the government to make sure that those hard-for laws are actually being enforced on digital technologies in 2021. And then we want to see innovative companies to make sure that they're following these laws and fighting discrimination rather than perpetuating it. And for me, I think the role of technologists are really to be the glue between those two in creating the solutions to detect discrimination and then reduce it. Yeah, you know, we're going to talk a little bit if we have time on these civil rights laws. But I, I mean, I agree with you. I think it is one of those problems that you actually need an all-hands-on-deck strategy. It's not going to be one actor that will fix this. But we're going to get back to these civil rights laws because they should at least be a floor. Now, Dominique, what I find to be interesting about what Shin Yan has talked about, and he's being very humble. He is the student of Latanya Sweeney, who I consider to be the queen of algorithmic bias, right, when it comes to shedding lights on these issues. The, the bigger challenge of algorithmic discrimination is the fact that the affected groups do not know that this is happening to them. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why that is also particularly uh, disturbing, that people who are online who think that they're participating in a very just internet don't know that they're not seeing the same information, ads, or having the same type of determinations made, made for them as other people. Yeah, so it's, it is difficult to understand the impact of these technologies because the information about how developers create these algorithms is proprietary and personal data, which is confidential. So the ambiguity of algorithms make a difficult task to identify biases or discrimination of algorithms because it's mathematically hard to know what an algorithm will do until it's used in practice. And many people may not even know if they are being discriminated against because you would need to have the data to understand that there is some type of discrimination incurring, which is disparate impact, unintentional discrimination. So it's thanks to independent researchers and journalists who investigate these issues that we know that discrimination is occurring across, again, a number of issues, as Jen has told us about. But we can only imagine what other harms might be occurring if we took the time to do more investigations about the different kinds of that come about in access to credit access to housing, and access to employment opportunities. Well, and, and Jinyan, I mean, what Dominique is saying is, and I love you you in your dissertation sort of lay out the socio-technical perspective on technology and really attune people to public interest goals, right? And I think that's going to be a spectacular space for you to be in because, you know, at the end of the day, when I talk to technologists, they sort of suggest to me that the math is objective and discreet, right? So it should be fair, 
and that they can actually, you know, write bias out of the equation as if they can solve, you know, hundreds of years of challenges when it comes to racism and discrimination. So I would love to hear from you as a computer scientist, you know, can technology make uh, these spaces more inclusive and fair? Or are we just setting ourselves up for, you know, another narrative that sort of averts the real problems in society? Yes. <laughs> That's a big question. I know. I already know. And I probably know the answer. But look, I'm not a computer scientist. <laughs> right. Well, first, I mean, it was also great to get to work with you on that dissertation. And I love the points that Dominique is talking about. I mean, I think there's definitely fantastic technical work that's being done by my colleagues in the field in terms of how can we measure racial bias in models? And then how can we then achieve different definitions of fairness and inclusivity? But I would say that as someone who's actually studied computer science and economics and political science at Harvard (laughs) over my career, so I approach this problem with more of a societal lens, right? Especially because as we've talked about, that discrimination is not a new problem that is only happening because of computers, but really it does go back to the history of this country and the society that has been formed based on that history. So then what are the major forces in our society that can actually make change happen and make sure that it actually sticks? And that really turns us to thinking about our laws, our norms, and our markets. And I think we really have to make sure that we work together to ensure that our laws, our norms, and markets all consider the public interest, which in this case includes the value of non-discrimination in how we design our technologies. And this is really especially important when we think about technologies like Facebook that in turn (laughs) shapes our society. We see this every day with social media in terms of what's going viral on Facebook ends up shaping our national dialogue. So Dominique, when you listen to Jinyan and and we start to talk about public interest goals of technology, you're a sociologist, right? So he's got the technical side with the sociological implications sort of encased in his thinking. You're actually like me, a person who doesn't believe that the historical realities predating the internet should be divorced of its realities right, right now. I'd love to hear from you. I mean, do you think that there's a possibility that our friends in computer science can sort of outmodel racism and discrimination? I mean, who's to know, right? I mean, I think hopefully in the future there may be a possibility. However, we know that technology alone is insufficient to eliminate discrimination. I mean, in practice, algorithms often replicate and perpetuate existing biases. And algorithms function by correlation, drawing connections and inferences from personal data to predict how an individual will act. So scholars like Rashida Richardson argue that much of the data associated with, for example, communities of color is dirty data, which can be missing data, wrong data, and data that comes from corrupt, bias, and unlawful practices, including data that has been intentionally manipulated. So if we begin with that premise and the fact that historical decisions have been encoded into contemporary data used to make decisions today, then we can reason that even while data programmers may not be intentionally trying to discriminate, they're ultimately subject to human bias and can consciously or unconsciously build their biases into algorithms they create. So we see this in recent studies on mortgage and lending 
Research shows that Latinx and African-American borrowers pay 7.9 and 3.6 base points more in interest for home purchases and refinance mortgages, respectively, and they face higher hurdles in being accepted for a mortgage. So there's much more work to be done to ensure that these systems and these new technologies do not produce discriminatory outcomes for communities of color. And we must keep in mind that this data, these algorithms cannot be divorced from the historical racist policies and programs uh, that we have seen in American history. I think that those points are excellent and well-spoken because at the end of the day, you know, as I also tell people, the values, norms, and assumptions of our society actually get built into these models, whether through the technologists or the organic iteration of what the model looks like when it's actually deployed within a context. And so those are so important for us to consider. And Jen, going back to your paper, I mean, look, you put out a strong argument that Facebook's advertising algorithm continues to discriminate by race and ethnicity, suggesting that even when they tried to solve it, they're still back in the same boat. But, you know, I I have to think, though, that given the public scrutiny and the legal accusations on housing discrimination that they've had to face in the past, like, why would they do that again? Or is that, again, the nature of the technology itself? Right. Thank you for asking that. I think with the findings that have the paper, I think we really have to think about what is Facebook trying to do with its algorithms and how is it leveraging the data it has to achieve those goals? And so to dive a little deeper into the research, Facebook is offering advertisers two primary ways to target new audiences for their ads. The first option is to use targeting options that Facebook itself has created of groups of users who behave the same or share the same interest. The second way is even more customized. An advertiser can upload their existing customers to Facebook, and then Facebook will analyze all of the data that it has on those users and figure out who looks like them based on its own proprietary algorithms, and then return these new lookalike audiences back to the advertiser as new potential targets for their ads. And in this case, if an ad is related to housing, employment, or credit, Facebook has designed a tweaked version of its lookalike audience algorithm to not consider sensitive attributes like age, gender, zip code, and others in an effort to be less discriminatory. But as you said, I mean, I found that Facebook can still facilitate potential discrimination by race and ethnicity through both of its ways of targeting. And this is happening despite many efforts from journalists, researchers, lawmakers, the ACLU, the National Housing Alliance, and even its own advertising customers last year who have pushed Facebook to address this problem over the last five years. I think what that really says, and I think it's important as we think about potential solutions, and for me, the main takeaway is that there's an importance in that we have to have smart solutions that rely on transparency rather than simply declaring a system to be unbiased by pretending that we've achieved what is often called fairness through unawareness. So I think the the main issue here, right, is that unfortunately, computers really don't work like humans. So people may discriminate against each other based on surface level appearances, which 
we hope we can teach our fellow Americans to go beyond those judgments. But computers, especially in a big data system like Facebook, are judging people across their every behavior and their every attribute, their social network, their position in our society, their families, and their neighbors. And all of that is going to be deeply influenced by race and ethnicity in this country. So removing race or even well-known proxies for race like zip code is not enough to make a computer not discriminate. In fact, in statistics, the reason why is called the multiplicity effect. It says that given a large data set with many variables, like what Facebook has, there are lots of potential models that can discriminate just as well as a prohibited model that's using a protected class variable like race. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, look, I can't wait to have your paper available on Brookings website. For those of you that are listening, you're listening to Jin Yanzong. He's saying he said, I actually have his paper on our website. You have to read it because I found it to be so fascinating. And, and Dominique, bringing you back into the conversation, we keep talking about the model, but you know, we cannot suggest that advertisers don't know what they're doing either, right? When they have this type of data that is available to them. Do you think that their permissions over this, you know, these new tools is also enabling these challenges when it comes to behavioral advertising? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is not new. I mean, I studied advertisement as an undergrad at, at University of Illinois, Urbana. And back to the beginning of the history of advertisements, we've always tried to differentiate between groups of people in order to sell products and services. Early TV shows were built around the kind of consumers that we wanted to target to buy specific uh, kinds of uh, products. So the fact that we see this occurring today is nothing new. The problem is as we've stated before in this uh, podcast, is the opportunities that are denied to communities of color based upon race or based upon gender or based upon ethnicity. And the fact that these companies are allowing advertisers or third-party companies to be able to delineate who they want to market specific housing advertisements or specific job opportunities, that's discrimination, right? They know what they're doing, though. They are profitable and are making tons of money off of advertisements. But we know that because we have anti-discrimination laws, that these practices shouldn't be occurring. So they shouldn't be getting away with that kind of behavior. So we do need to press more harder to ensure that given the kind of permissions that um, such platform companies are allowing advertisers to use, they should still not be able to say, we only want to show our advertisement to this group of people versus this group of people. That's right. I mean, we do have what's called the uh, Fair Housing Act, (laughs) the Fair Credit and Reporting Act. And Jen, I'll be bringing you back in because you've been saying civil rights, civil rights, civil rights. You're a man after my own heart on that one, right? Because these laws actually dictate what people can and cannot do. And we saw, for example, in the earlier versions of the Facebook housing tool, that one of the things that it allowed advertisers to do was to check people off. And that is something that you cannot do when it comes to the physical space of denying the opportunity for people to see certain housing options, you know, simply because you've decided that they're not able to afford it. When you think about a call to policymakers, and you actually lay these out in your paper as well, 
you know, speak to us, you know, you mentioned civil rights laws, you mentioned this transparency, speak to us about what policymakers need to hear, because that's how we got those laws in the first place. Yeah, exactly. As someone who's also worked at the Federal Trade Commission, I mean, understanding how advertising is really shaping the economic lives of Americans is incredibly important. And it's really the role of government to make sure that we have a fair marketplace that is with all the opportunities that's available to everyone, regardless of their race and ethnicity. And I think in terms of for the policymakers who may be listening to this, I think the real important goal is rather than trying to think that we've achieved fairness through unawareness by mandating a specific process has to happen, let's actually try to achieve fairness through awareness. Let's make policies that require transparency in how advertisers are actually using Facebook and targeting people. Let's require regular civil rights audits of Facebook's platform. And let's actually also require Facebook to understand who are the users who are protected by our civil rights laws, and then actually build its tools to ensure that they are being protected as guaranteed by the law. Yes, yes. In fact, you and I and Latanya have talked about this. I, I sort of think that we need to train in school computer scientists to understand what civil rights compliance means in the development and design of products, right? How they execute those products as well. You use those civil rights audits. But I totally agree with you. I mean, I would even go a step further and say that we need an explicit interpretability of the current anti-discrimination laws on the books. And if those are not sufficient, we need to come up with other accountability rules. Because if we start there, at least everybody starts out the gate fair, right? Versus having people's data used in ways that it could be manipulated. Dominique, I want to bring you in because I know as a policy maker and researcher, you're looking at privacy. Do you think privacy has a lot to do with this? I mean, the United States doesn't have a federal privacy standard, which could allow for this like wild, wild west when it comes to the collection of data disproportionately impacting people of color. Absolutely. I definitely think it has a lot to do with it. And it could be one of the tools that can be used to mitigate these kinds of issues. Federal privacy legislation can address these kinds of challenges, and a federal law could ensure fairness in automated decisions, provide individual control of personal information, and protect people from inaccurate data. I mean, yesterday I was very happy to see at the Senate Commerce hearing on consumer privacy that Senator Warnock emphasized the need to address discriminatory data uses and how to address them. And one of the tools that many policymakers are fighting for right now is federal privacy legislation. In the meantime, we will see a patchwork of state laws until we can get federal privacy legislation. I mean, I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but we need to do something quick. Don't you both think? (laughs) Because we've seen George Floyd and what's happened with the inability to reach, you know, consensus around policing laws. And now we're seeing the attack on voting rights. I mean, Jen, these are playing out as if we were in the 60s when it comes to algorithmic bias and how it even feeds into misinformation and disinformation, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, in the parts of the attributes that I'm looking at for this research in terms of being able to target different demographic groups based on options that Facebook itself has created and their algorithms have actually been shown to be used in 2016 in data that Congress has released in its investigation of how Russian affiliated groups were targeting American voters to try to influence that election. 
Yeah, I mean, you have a whole new theory on that, that I have to have you back and talk about that as well. Because I still think that the jury is still out on what really happened and we're not quite understanding what happened. And, you know, I want to say to both of you, a lot of that has to do with the limitations in accessing some of the data for research. I mean, what are these barriers that social science researchers and computer scientists like yourselves are facing when they try to study these types of biases on social media platforms? I mean, what gets in the way? Yeah, I mean, as Jen has, you know, spoken about, it's the lack of data, right, that researchers have to be able to investigate these kinds of issues. I mean, we're constantly seeing how tech companies are shutting down their own researchers within their companies from doing and investigating these issues. And so that's a problem, right? But I think that, you know, in the meantime, right, what we can be doing is encouraging specific federal agencies like HUD, EEOC, FTC, and others to do more investigations to look at these issues that are occurring. What I'm so excited about is that these new jobs are popping up within federal agencies around data scientists and engineers that can help in beginning to really look at some of these problems. But until then, you know, it is people like Jen and you, Nicole, who have to continue to research and investigate these problems and provide more solutions for policymakers to address these challenges until we can get some kind of legislation. Yeah, I mean, Jen, I mean, I want you to answer that question of what gets in the way and then also what opportunities could be presented to companies who find themselves in these same quagmires. Right. I mean, I would say in my study, for example, it's an external test of Facebook's app platform. So I can demonstrate that the racial and ethnic biases that I've described here are happening, but I can't explain why Facebook's algorithms have those biases. Mm. Facebook does not share information about that. And I would really argue that the real value of having more data for research is in establishing facts and trust from the public. We all saw this firsthand for ourselves in the past two years with the COVID-19 pandemic. Overnight, many of us started looking at epidemiological data on how does COVID-19 spread? What are the case numbers? What are the variants? And then with the vaccines, there is a highly transparent process in publishing research trials on their safety and efficacy, which are then reviewed by experts at the FDA and the CDC before being allowed to be given to Americans. And so I think having facts based on research studies using data then turns a political debate with opinions from every side about whether a problem exists into a policy debate about how do we solve the problem. And that's why data is important. We need to have that policy debate. With data, we can then test what solutions seem to work and which ones don't. With data, we can independently verify what companies are telling us about what's happening. And in the end, that's the only way you can gain the trust of the public, that they're not being manipulated and that they have access to the truth. Yeah, you know, when you say data, I love that we have had this conversation, Jinyan and um, Dominique, because... Oftentimes we look at data and we're really looking at training data that is going into the algorithm. And I think what we're trying to suggest in this actual podcast is that 
when these types of mistakes happen, we have to look at all of the actors that are involved, but we have to make sure that this is more of a cooperative and collaborative uh, working space that we can get to better truths about what we're seeing. So I really appreciate that because we often don't have that conversation on how important it is to have social science researchers sort of part of this dialogue and using the data that they are to test whether or not we can actually solve some of these racial biases. It's not about, Jen, I'm sorry to say this, but I tell my engineer friends all the time, it's not about you throwing in some noise, okay? Um, it's about really sitting at the table and even figuring out if we need to use demographic data to ensure that we're not creating biased algorithms. Listen, as we wrap up, I do have this one question for you. I mean, we've talked a lot about Facebook. We've talked a lot about models, but we haven't talked as much about consumers. How can consumers protect their own civil rights on these platforms? Because I think that is a part that's probably going to be the, the tipping point in terms of moving this debate forward when more people realize that this is actually happening to them. Dominique, I'll go to you first. How do, how do consumers protect their own civil rights? Wow, that's a really great question, Nicole. And, and I think it's a challenge, right? It's like, we, it goes back to one of your first questions is, if you don't even know something is kind of occurring, that's some kind of harm towards you, how can you report it? But I think in general, if you think that there is some kind of result, whether it is the kind of insurance uh, rate that you are receiving or the kind of, you know, interest rate that you're receiving from home, uh, a mortgage or lending um, institution, that you should report it. Report it to the federal agency that governs those types of industries and start there. I mean, for one, the Federal Trade Commission has been encouraging consumers to reach out if they feel like they're being treated unfairly. And so I think by having more people report, you know, the fact that they may be experiencing something that is unfair in the kind of goods and services that they're receiving is a starting point. But again, people need to know that these problems are out there. This type of discrimination is occurring. And I think that more government agencies should be encouraging the reporting of this kind of behavior online. Did y'all take us home on this? How can consumers protect their own civil rights online on these social media platforms? Right. I would say get informed and get organized. The biggest revolution that the internet and social media has brought is in how easy it is to get information today and then also meet with like-minded people online to get organized. Now, that can be a force for chaos, like we see with misinformation and the events of January 6th, but can also be a force for good and change. Like in this case, we saw with the Stop Hate for Profit boycott on Facebook that was organized in July 2020. And we have to think of consumers as also being citizens and an informed and organized group of citizens can be an unstoppable force. Yes. And, you know, that Stop the Hate campaign was pretty deep, right? Because that came with the bandwidth of civil rights organizations like the NAACP and others to really have this message that no more, no more, right? We need to stop this hate that's actually happening on these platforms. You know, I could keep on going. This has been a fascinating conversation. And for those of you that know me, I love smart people. So having Chin Yang Zhang and Dominique Harrison on this podcast has just made my day. You know, that paper will soon be available that Jin Yang has been referencing on the Brookings website. You'll just go under the AI tab, hit AI bias, and you will find it. 
It will be forthcoming and we'll be sure for those of you that follow the Center for Technology Innovation to let you know when it's there. Thank you both for the work that you're doing. And I know, Dominique, you're working on some stuff as well on Section 230, as well as algorithmic bias and civil rights. So as soon as that's done, let me know so we can promote the work of the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. And it's a pleasure being on this panel with you as well, Jim. Same here. Thank you so much. I just have to tell all of you, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Tech Tank, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bites, not bits. Please follow this and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter, which offers fresh content daily. I am Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, the director of the Brookings Center for Technology Innovation, and I thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.